You're listening to Seven Churches, a teaching series at Shoreline Church with Pastor Pilgrim Benham. For more content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's look at Revelation 2, and um, as Carol just read, thank you for reading that. We're going to look at verses 18 through 29. Uh, the corrupt church is what my heading says. And as we open up this text, I want to share a little story with you. In the early 1980s, in uh, the Southern California town of Hinckley, uh, some things started getting kind of, well, strange. People started noticing that uh, in this town, in the outskirts of this town, they started having lung issues. And then other health-related problems. And, and some of them, uh, some of the problems seemed to be genetic. They were clearly genetic, passed down from mom or dad. But most of the issues that they were finding were cancer-related. And people were starting to suffer, uh, especially along a stretch of road just outside Hinkley in the Mojave Desert of California. And so at the exact same time that people were having these health cancer-related issues, uh, a San Francisco-based company known as Pacific Gas and Electric, well, they started buying up 75% of the land along the road that stretched into uh, Hinkley. Uh, they're known as PG&E. One of PG&E's gas pipelines had a compression station right there along that stretch of property. And what they found out was that a chemical agent called hexavalent chromium was actually uh, being used since the 1960s as a cooling agent at that particular station, and pg and used that in different areas. Well, the people were wondering, is there a link between hexavalent chromium and the groundwater supply of the town of Hinkley? And sadly, there was. There emphatically was a connection. And so what ensued was, uh, at that time, and I believe up until now in American history, the largest settlement uh, ever paid in a direct action lawsuit in U.S. history. The tune of about $333 million paid to the people of Hinkley uh, who were suffering from the uh, cancerous effects. But not only that, uh, but this was uh, captured, this story was captured by filmmakers. Some of you remember this story. It was captured in the film Erin um, Brockovich. She was kind of the lead uh, uh, lawyer, and uh, I think she was played by, who was it, Julia Roberts, I believe. Uh, back in the 90s. So the biggest problem in this case with PG&E was that they knew about the effects of hexavalent chromium. They knew. They knew that they were messing with something that could cause major problems. They've been doing it for 20 plus years. But here's the problem. They did nothing to stop it. They did nothing uh, to change it. They just silently bought a property and tried to sweep it kind of under the rug. Now, if the church of Pergamum that we studied last week is an example of a compromising church that's taking those first baby steps toward compromising sin. Well, then the church of Thyatira is the church that has completely gone to bed with idolatry and is beginning to suffer the life-threatening side effects of immorality. And so today we're going to see Jesus coming to his church, and he's coming in judgment. Uh, this is a heavy letter. This is a scathing letter. It's a letter that made me lose sleep this week, and it doesn't surprise me we've had major issues with the technical areas around the screen, because the enemy doesn't want us to hear this message today. This is the shortest, or the smallest city in, in importance, and yet the, the most important and largest letter that Jesus writes. And here's the reason that this is important for us. See, the church was tolerating heresy, and they were tolerating sin. And if there's ever a place that heresy and sin do not belong, 
It's the church, right? Amen? Uh, Peter tells us judgment comes to God's house. Here's what he said in 1 Peter 4.17. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? We don't like to amen that one, but it's time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And that's exactly what Jesus does in his address to the church of the city of Thyatira, the longest letter written to correct what could very well be the most corrupt of all the churches. Now, if this is your first Sunday, first few Sundays, welcome. Uh, we are studying through the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And what happened in chapter 1 of Revelation, a lot of people don't read or study Revelation, uh, unless they're trying to find out who the Antichrist is, and, and they nominate everyone, it seems like, nowadays. And, uh, but what's really insightful is that in chapter 1, John the Apostle hears a voice behind him. It sounds like a waterfall, like a mighty rushing water. And he turns around and he sees Jesus in all of his resplendent, unveiled glory. This is a different look than how we saw Jesus of Nazareth on the cross. This is a Jesus who has white hair, fire in his eyes, and he's got a, a, a tongue that comes out of his mouth that's basically a sword. And, and John is terrified, like you and I would be. But then Jesus says, I've got a message. I've got a message for seven churches in Asia. And the words that he speaks to these seven churches are applicable for those churches, but they're also applicable for every church and for our church, Shoreline Church, this morning, 2,000 years later. So if you're taking note, I believe we can give you the outline on the screen. We're going to do our best to try to make the slides work today. So I don't know if we can get it up there, but uh, we've got, uh, with each letter, a city, an actual city that existed. We've got a characteristic of Christ that we refer back to from chapter 1 that we're going to kind of emphasize. There's a commendation. Remember, give me a thumbs up. All right, give me a thumbs up. Yeah, that's where you participate. Give me a thumbs up. You guys are disobedient today. All right, thumbs up. All right, now if someone's taking a picture, that's the right time to take a picture of the church giving their pastor a thumbs up. All right, now no one take a picture now, but he also gives them a thumbs down. Give me a thumbs down. That is a criticism. Someone's like, this is a bad sermon. Thumbs down, all right? There's a correction because here's the great news, church. Jesus doesn't leave you with a criticism. He doesn't say, let me just criticize you. Have a great day. God bless. Go Eagles. Right? He doesn't do that. <laughs> Jesus gives you a correction. He says, let me correct you. Don't bring up football at church. Right? That's the correction that he gives you. And then he gives you a crown. He says, here's something that's a reward for you if you'll overcome. So there's a reward for us if we're willing to do what he calls us to do. So let's be encouraged today with a heavy word from the Lord. All right. So look at verse 18. We just read it, but he says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira. Okay, a couple things about this city, if you're taking note. Thyatira was the headquarters for a variety of ancient guilds. That's G-U-I-L-D-S. These were including the Potter's Guild, the Tanner's Guild, the Weaver's Guild, the Road Makers, and the Dyer's Guild. It was basically the center of the dyeing industry. It's not a funny thing. What do you do? I'm in the dyeing industry. Oh, okay. I got it. In the dyeing industry. So remember from Acts chapter 16, there was a woman named Lydia. Uh, she was a seller of purple cloth. Um, she originated from this city. She made her business and her trade came from Thyatira. Everyone knew that this was the commercial, kind of artsy part of uh, Asia Minor. They worshiped Apollo, the sun god, in this city. Now, it sounds significant as a city, but as I just mentioned, it is the smallest and most insignificant city that Jesus addresses in Revelation 2 and 3. 
the elder of Pliny dismissed it with almost a contemptuous phrase. He said, oh, Thyatira and other unimportant cities when he made his comments. It's just one of those unimportant cities. Maybe that's where you came from. You're like here this morning and Bradenton is like big city for you, all right? So you're just from a part of a country or, or town where it's just unimportant. It's nothing to write home about. But it's interesting to me that this is really the most insignificant, but Jesus has the longest letter to them. So how does Jesus address them? Look with me in verse 18. It says, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. Oh no, this is not a good way to start out with those characteristics. Jesus first says, I'm the Son of God. I'm the Son of God. That gives him his authoritative place in the Trinity, we believe as Christians in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is identifying himself as a God the Son. And then he's referring to his eyes. Notice that they're like blazing fire. They burn through all of the masks that you and I put on as we come to church. And you know, you just did it. Like, hey, good morning, how are you? I'm doing good. I don't really care. Okay, God bless. And, and we, we greet and smile and really maybe hurting. I know, I know some of you are hurting today. I know there's marriages that are struggling. I know there's a struggle to get the kids like here and sanctified in the car right before church. Like, be Christian, you know, you evil children, you evil spawn. Be godly. Make, make me look good here. Like, let's come in. I get it. And we have struggles. We smile and everything's great. But see, Jesus' eyes are a flame of fire. They pierce through, they burn through the way we appear to others. You get right to the heart of the matter. And then seeing the things that are unseen. Notice that Jesus says that his feet are like fine brass, uh, bronze. And so this is interesting. Bronze is always biblically symbolic of judgment. You guys remember growing up, your parents would call you by your name. Uh, except when you were really in trouble, they called you by your first and middle and last name. Now you're in trouble. You're going to get it, right? That's essentially what Jesus is coming, uh, is calling them by their first, middle, and last name. He's coming with eyes of fire to judge and feet that are filled uh, with brass. We don't like judgment. Uh, we use phrases like, don't judge, right? Judge not, right? The most quoted, misquoted scripture uh, verse of all. And so here Jesus is coming to judge, but he's here to judge his church. So um, why is he coming to judge his church? Let's look first at the commendation, the thumbs up that Jesus has. Look at verse 19. And this looks like an A plus to me. Look at it. Verse 19, I know your works. I know your love, your service, your faith. And your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. The ESV says the latter exceed the first. You're doing more now. Here's just a quick list of these on the screen. This is what Jesus commends. First of all, your works. These guys are hard workers. They're known for action. Not only that, but love. The church here, in contrast to Ephesus, had love for many people. In fact, they're the only church that Jesus commends for having love. Uh, this could prove to be a downfall, though, as we'll see in a second. So they have love. Not only that, but they have faith. So their deeds and love are motivated by their faith in Christ. That's awesome. We need to take steps of faith. They have that. They're also a church of service. They're known in the community for serving others, for loving others, being involved in ministry. They have patient endurance and steadfastness, which you and I lack in traffic. They have that. That was a thing in, in the church. And they were doing more than they had ever done. Sometimes we plateau as churches and we do less and less and less and we decline. They're actually increasing. They're ramping up the ministry. These are all awesome things. And we for a minute could say, 
Well, that reminds me of the church here in Bradenton. That reminds me of Shoreline. We're doing a lot of great things. We're known for working hard and loving and being serving and doing more than we've ever done. As someone may read this and say, okay, wow, well, that church gets a straight A, but see, there's a huge criticism. And listen, it's a scathing review by Jesus that basically says, yeah, here's all your A's, but this one thing is going to flunk you. Okay, now you get an F. Look at the criticism in verse 20. Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow. Would you circle that word allow? If it's a handout Bible, just circle it anyway. Uh, allow. If, it's a, if you're on the Bible app, just highlight it. Uh, allow. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Notice Jesus says in verse 21, I gave uh, her time to repent, uh, and she did not. So then this is what Jesus will do, because there's a lack of repentance, verse 22, indeed I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, they will also receive great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And then something very insightful, verse 22, I will kill her children with death, you'll die from death. Wow. And all the churches, the testimony will be that they'll know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And notice he says, I'll give each one of you according to your works. Wow, that is heavy. Sadly, the church of Thyatira had, if you can believe this, they had too much love. They had too much love. That's actually an incorrect statement, and I'll clarify what I mean in a moment. But like the power company in Southern California, the water supply here, if so to speak, had become corrupted, and they knew it. Uh, but they weren't willing to do anything to stop it. Where Ephesus was strong in doctrine, lacking in love, Thyatira seemed to be apparently strong and commended in love, but they were weak in doctrine. They weren't willing to disagree with anyone about doctrinal heresy. Here's what one person said. I think we have the quote. He said, it's common for churches to be polarized in one of these two extremes. Either they'll have full heads and empty hearts or full hearts and empty heads. Either polarization is deadly. God demands both love and sound doctrine. Okay, now, there's something at your dinner table, everyone in this room, I would imagine. There's something at your dinner table that we use on all, almost all of our food, sometimes too much, uh, but it's called table salt. And a lot of people don't realize that table salt, sodium chloride, is made up of two poisonous um, elements. There's sodium, which is uh, an alkaline metal, and by itself, in fact, if you were to toss pure sodium, if you were to construct it, throw it into water, it would actually be explosive. And something that can, that can kill you right, by ingesting it. But chlorine, on the other hand, that's that poison you dump into your pool, that's gaseous, and that is equally as poisonous. We take these two poisonous uh, elements, we put them together, and now we've got something very interesting. We have, and it's pure form, table salt. Something that adds flavor, something that adds um, a taste to our food. And so, too, doctrine and love must be found together. One without the other can lead to a dangerous imbalance. But combined, hey, they bring flavor and help. Now, some people would say, okay, this church was strong on love, weak in doctrine. But I question that exact definition. Uh, because if we understand love correctly, would we really say they loved too much? Would we say that if we understand love? I believe, no, they bought into the lie that says you can love someone without truth. Uh, I can love you, but I don't have to be honest with you. But see, love without truth, it isn't love. It's infatuation. It's concession. 
Listen, it's masqueraded hatred. Because if I truly love someone, I'm not going to withhold truth from them that would lead to their destruction. If I love my brother, and we pull up to the gas station, and he gets out of the car and begins to light a cigarette as he's pumping gas, I love him so much that I'm going to slap him and tell him to stop that, because he's causing danger potentially to himself, me, my family, and everyone around us. And so it's not loving to withhold truth that leads to someone's destruction. And well, maybe it is loving. It's loving self, loving comfort, but not loving the other person. Jesus says that they tolerate, that they put up with Jezebel. Now, if you're taking note, no one would name their child Jezebel. That would be like naming your son Pilgrim or something crazy like that. <laughs> Everyone. And no one names their kid Hitler or Judas right, on purpose. So uh, most scholars, and I agree with them, they don't think Jezebel was a literal woman. It, they believe it was a picture of an actual woman that was teaching false doctrine, but they're labeling her a Jezebel. Now, we don't have time today, but I want you to jot down uh, this. Um, go look it up in 1 Kings. Go look up Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab was a king, immediately begins to be corrupted by Jezebel. And as soon as she's off the scene, he has a change of heart when he hears God speak to him. So Jezebel is this corrupting influence uh, and makes Ahab the most dirty, demonic king that ever reigned in Israel uh, and begins to worship and serve Baal, begins to commit sexual immorality and, and eat food offered to idols. And so Jesus says that this person, Jezebel, is committing sexual immorality and teaching everyone else and seducing them to do the same. Now, someone may be here this morning and say, uh, I don't struggle with sexual morality, so I'm good. Well, before we think we're off the hook, Scripture calls idolatry uh, essentially the same thing as spiritual adultery, an unfaithful wife and even her husband. And so Jezebel, in a sense, represents anything in our life that takes us away, leading us to idolatry, worshiping things instead of worshiping God. And so Jesus says, notice, I'm giving her time to repent. He gives all of us time to repent. Some of you raised your hand last week about the things that you may be compromising. And I just want you to know God is gracious. You raise your hand in, a, in a, an act of confession. And the Lord is gracious. He's giving you time to repent. And, and you may not have raised your hand. He's giving you time to repent. He gives all of us. He gave Ahab time. And Ahab did repent. But this Jezebel did not. She didn't change her ways. So he says, you're going to be cast into a sickbed. And anyone who does this with you will also face the consequences, in this case, dead children. Now, Jesus said if they don't repent, um, they would die. And he says that I'm the one who searches hearts and minds. If you're taking note, when he says I'm the one who searches um, hearts and minds, verse 23, um, the word for heart, uh, he's basically saying um, the, the seat of your intellect. And, uh, and when he says uh, heart and mind, a heart would be your kidneys, so your mind and your heart your brain and your kidneys. He's saying the place where all of your thoughts and all of your emotions come from, I see that, and I search that, and I know where you're at. And this morning, Psalm 139 reminds us where David the psalmist would pray this prayer, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there's any wicked way within me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Isn't that a great prayer? Lord, search me. If there's anything in me that's that's corrupting, then lead me. Help me to bring it to you. Know my thoughts, know my heart, and then just lead me in the way everlasting. Please, for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your walk with Jesus today, I plead with you in Christ's name, don't leave today. 
without saying, search me, O God, know me. Is there any way within me that's wicked? And then lead me, Lord, please. I beseech you not to leave today without asking the Lord to search you. I ask the same thing this morning. Lord, search my heart. Now note with me the perennial problem with the, thir- with the church of Thyatira was, notice they tolerated Jezebel's doctrine. They tolerated it. Ephesus was commended way back in chapter 2, verse 2, for not tolerating this false teaching. And yet, uh, this church is criticized for allowing sinful heresy into the body of Christ. Okay? Um, the word for allow here should actually be translated tolerate. So on the screen, here's the, the actual definition of the word tolerate in our English uh, dictionary. To leave alone, to not discuss now, to neglect, to permit, or to, like we see here, to allow. You know, honestly, that sounds a lot like what maybe we're supposed to do with people we disagree with. So I'm just going to let things lie. I disagree with you politically in every way, and I'm not going to bring that up, and I'm not going to bring up religion because that's divisive, and I'm not going to bring up the fact that the Eagles are definitely going to win tonight. I'm not going to bring that up. So we're not going to get it. We're just going to kind of put up with, neglect, not discuss it, leave it alone. Didn't you do that at Thanksgiving? You have that one political person you disagree with at the dinner table, and you're like, no, don't do it. Don't go there. You're like, okay, guys, bye. And then you're, you're eating your turkey or ham on outside in the freezing cold, right? Not willing to do it. And so um, the church here, in a word, is tolerant. We're tolerant. Now, for our purposes together this morning, I, I find it really insightful that we take a minute. Can, would you permit us to do this? Take a minute and investigate how a church becomes tolerant. How does a church fall into being like Thyatira? Are you guys good with that? Can we do five ways that a church becomes tolerant? Can we do that today? It's a little heady. You guys good? My, my brain was going to blow up this week studying this. So, um, so let's jot these down. Five ways that a church becomes tolerant. Okay? This is what happened to the church of Thyatira. First of all, there's a desire, if you're taking note, to fit in with the culture. Desire to fit in with the culture. How does a church that's solid suddenly become tolerant of heresy and sin? Well, it isn't always sudden. Uh, in his book, The Truth War, John MacArthur says this, we have a quote, the idea that the Christian message should be kept pliable and ambiguous seems especially attractive to young people who are in tune with the culture and in love with the spirit of the age, can't stand to have authoritative biblical truth applied with precision as a corrective to worldly lifestyles, unholy minds, and ungodly behavior. And the poison of this perspective is being increasingly injected into the evangelical church body. And we're growing up in a church that embraces, I don't mean this church, but the church of Jesus Christ, embraces postmodernism. What is that? Well, it's a whole system that basically teaches we can't really know anything for sure, and, and truth changes, and as long as you sincerely believe it enough, well then you must be, if it's right for you, it's true for you, then we're good. So I emphatically disagree with you, but you, you're so like firm and, 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 and genuine in what you believe that, okay, we can just agree to disagree. That's the idea. And uh, if it's, if the idea is there's no absolute right or wrong, so if you can't allow me just to be fine with what I believe in, you're a racist or you're a bigot or you're intolerant. Um, here's what Alan Bloom said back in the late 70s. He said, openness, or 80s, openness and the relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and kinds of human beings, he says, openness is the great insight of our times. The true believer is the real danger. Don't you hear that? That, that? We are the real danger because we have absolute truth. 
The study of history and of culture teaches that all the world was mad in the past. Men always thought that they were right, and that led to wars, persecution, slavery, xenophobia, racism, and chauvinism. The point is not to correct the mistakes and really be right. Rather, it's not to think that you're right at all. That is the, uh, that is the MO of our culture today. And I've heard that same idea echoed in, in a million coffee shops, college dorms, news reports, community groups. It's the issue of absolute truth and tolerance. So we have a desire to please Jesus, but we also want to fit in with our culture. So that's the first step. The second step, the second way that we start falling into this, is a failure to rightly define sin. We don't want to define sin and call it what it is. But what is sin? It's lawlessness, it's rebellion, it's treason, it's spiritual adultery. It's breaking God's laws and commands. But see, we, we want to start using words that aren't so, you know, offensive. So we'll say, well, it's not sin, it's a struggle. Uh, or it's, uh, it's a disease, I have a disease. You're like, no, you're just, you're just a lustful sinner. You're like, no, it's a disorder, I'm using a different name. And so while we're at it, we use different names for sin, we start coming up with new definitions for even the word tolerance. Now, D.A. Carson has a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And it's very helpful along this line. Uh, a lot of persons work brilliant mind, connect theology to culture. And so um, he talks about the original word tolerance. You heard this, right? You need to be tolerant of my beliefs. Well, here's what the original word meant. The traditional and modernist use of tolerance is this. I may disagree with you, but I insist on your right to articulate your opinion, no matter how stupid or ignorant that I think it is. Someone says, I want to light the cigarette while I pump the gas. So I say, I'm tolerant of you, but that is the dumbest thing you could ever do, right? And so, essentially, the idea here uh, is that there's now a new definition of tolerance. The United Nations Declaration of Principles of Tolerance, 1995, says this. Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. Wait, what? Do you catch what that means? That means you have no right to hold a truth to be dogmatically true. Actually, the National Lambda Chi Alpha position is even worse, says this. Um, they're the ones that keep getting in trouble with hazing. The definition of new tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal. They're all equal. There is no hierarchy of truth. Your beliefs and my beliefs are equal, and all truth is relative. That's an official statement. I said, do you absolutely believe in that statement? And they might say, I don't know, right? <laughs> don't you hear people saying this about religion? Some, I know of a few shorewriters that lately have gotten into some discussions with Jehovah's Witnesses, with Mormons, and you hear this statement often uh, that, you know, there's, uh, all religions are the same. They all believe the same thing. They're all just different uh, ways to approach God. This week, uh, because we don't have the slide for it, you ever seen those coexist bumper stickers? All right, we don't have a way to do it this morning because we don't have the slide, but this week I'm going to do a Facebook Live and answer every one of those coexist and how there's no way that all of those are the same uh, same way to God. If, if that is true, we have a very schizophrenic God because God keeps disagreeing with himself at every one of those. So we will, we will do it this morning, but um, we'll do it uh, this week. So keep an eye out for that. Um, so ultimately, if we pick our favorite religion, Right? Is that a matter of preference? We're all true. It's all just different ways to the same God. Everyone, well, is religion a matter of preference? I mean, that's like saying coffee, right? If I said, which one do you prefer? Do you prefer Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts? Real quick, let's just call them out. Who prefers Starbucks this morning? 
Show of hands. All right, who prefers Dunkin' Donuts? All right, they say America runs on Dunkin'. I would say no, America, America drags on Dunkin'. Anyway, uh, maybe the coffee. See, one of those, Starbucks Dunkin' Donuts, one of those is affordable and actually tastes pretty good. The other tastes burnt and you need a second mortgage to afford it. My right? wife loves us so much, I bought stock in the company, literally. Right, so, now, we could say, okay, preference, preference, but if I said, which of those two coffee shops is on the corner of State Road 70 and Lorraine, which is the correct answer? Dunkin' Donuts, someone's like, I'm not from here. Okay, it's a, it's, a, it's a right and wrong answer. It's not a matter of my opinion or preference, it's a matter of fact or fiction, truth or non-truth, real or imagined. When it comes to religion, many postmoderns, including some of us today, maybe under the assumption that it's just a matter of preference rather than truth or non-truth. But see, God has revealed himself. We have revealed truth. He's revealed it in the person of Christ. So that's the third step. Um, I don't know if we, uh, or here's the third one. Uh, forsaking absolute truth for relativism. Uh, relativism, we kind of just talked about that. But here's the fourth one. Moving closed-handed issues into open-handed ones. Okay? We believe in open-handed issues and closed-handed issues. A lot of the open-handed issues include, can I wear jeans to church? That's an open-handed issue. Uh, you're free not to do that. Someone dressed up today and says, oh, they wear jeans at this church. Okay, I didn't realize that. An open-handed issue might be, can you have drums in worship? Some churches say, no, you cannot. Well, that's an open-handed issue. We can agree to disagree. And then there's some closed-handed issues. Things like the Trinity, uh, the authority of Scripture, personal work of Christ. There's many more than that. But the problem is when we move the closed hand into the open hand and say, well, let's question whether the Trinity actually is biblical. Let's question uh, biblical doctrine. And see, what happens is the question then in the next generation becomes the consideration, and then in the next generation it's the assumption. I like what C.S. Lewis said about this. He said, uh, an open mind in questions that are not ultimate, it's useful in the open-handed issues. But an open mind about ultimate foundations, either of theoretical or practical reason, is idiocy. If a man's mind is open on these things, let his mouth at least be shut. I love that. Now, many scholars believe that, listen, Jezebel was encouraging the church to join the trade guilds. Hey, you need to join the potter's guild. You need to join... Uh, the Tanner's Guild. And so they're like, well, if I join the guild, that does provide my paycheck. But see, the problem is I have to worship that patron god or goddess, which included eating food that's sacrificed to them, and then eventually in the temple, some sexually immoral things. But I have to stay married, or maybe I could indulge in that, but it's going to save my business. And Tertullian actually said, do you need, do you need to save your business? Is that, do you, must you work? If that's what work involves, compromising your faith, must you work? And so uh, many scholars believe that they went down this road and embraced the world uh, and compromised their beliefs to reach people with love. So the last step, number five, is that this is how we fall into tolerance, is that we fail to take a stand for the truth. We just fail. We have that opportunity and we fail to stand. What does the Bible say about how we should react to heresy? Now let me put this on the screen for you. First Timothy uh, chapter 6, chapter 4, and Titus 1 and 3 give us... Um, some insight on what our response should be. It's not to tolerate, it's not to turn a deaf ear or a blind eye. Um, let me just read some of the action words. Paul says, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge. Turn away from them. He says in 4-7, have nothing to do 
with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. There's training involved, but there's having nothing to do with these other things. Titus 1, Paul says, there are many rebellious people. There's mere talkers, deceivers, but they must be silenced. He says, rebuke them sharply so they will be sound in the faith. Titus 3.9, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Why? They're unprofitable and they're useless. Avoid them. Notice those words. Turn away, have nothing to do with, silence them, rebuke them, and avoid it. Kind of opposite of tolerate, right? It's the opposite. And just allow it. No. See, I believe we're in danger of church of doing the exact same thing in our day. I think that if Thyatira, as a representative in heaven, they would stand in judgment of the church today. Uh, they would say, listen, you guys are tolerating a lot of heresy, a lot of ridiculous beliefs. And why would you tolerate that? Why? Because we're too scared or too loving to speak the truth. I'm afraid I might lose my friend or lose an argument. So I sit by idly and allow ignorance and even heresy to infiltrate the church. Martin Luther King Jr. said it best. He said, there comes a time when silence is betrayal. And then he said elsewhere, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. I believe we're in a day when the church tolerates Jezebel. So my prayer is that we boldly stand for truth, absolute truth. And that's going to marginalize us. It's already happening in Europe and Canada. We're going to be marginalized for that. But the question today is, do I, do I sell out what I know is true or what is expedient? Do I stand for truth even when I'm compared to the rest of the people in my culture. So, let's look at the corrections of the church. Look at verse uh, 24. Here's what Jesus would say to correct them. He says, Now to you I say, the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, uh, who have not known, notice the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. Notice Jesus calls for practice a doctrine, and it's the depths of Satan. What does that mean? Well, David Busick is helpful here. He said, uh, the ancient writer Tertullian said, if you ask the Gnostic about their cosmic mysteries, they furrow their brow and said, it is deep. He said, it may be deep, but it's deep into a dangerous pit. That's, that's awesome. Smyrna was attacked by the synagogue of Satan. Remember that? Pergamum, as we learned last week, had the fall of Satan. They were where Satan dwelt. But Thyatira, they had fallen into the deep things of Satan. Uh, notice in verse 24, Jesus says this to the rest of the church. So there were some in the church that were not putting up with it. We're not going to like tolerate false teaching. And so what does Jesus say? He says, I put on you no other burden. I love that. And that should be our response. I'm not going to put up with heresy. I'm just going to follow the Lord. Now, notice verse 25. He says, um, but hold fast, or only hold fast, what you have till I come. I love that. Jesus doesn't give an excessive... A burdensome command. He just says, whatever you already have, just hang on to it. I'm not going to lay a big, heavy command on you. I think sometimes we come into church and we think God has this big laundry list of do's and don'ts. And then we add to it, which is how we become legalistic. We add to the do's and don'ts. Let me add to that. My own little special commands. And so we're, sometimes we're like barely hanging in there, just trying to impress them. Let me just show off my spiritual calisthenics that I need to do to impress them. And he says to that weary soldier this morning, hey, just hold the line. I'm not going to lay any excessive weight on you the way you already have. And some of you here this morning may be that person. You're just barely hanging on. And you don't need the Lord to come and say, I've got a lot more for you to do. Just hold in there. Hang in there. I'm coming quickly. Don't let go. 
And those with Thyatira with sound theology, robust doxology, nothing more is needed. Just hang on to your truth and your love of Jesus, and that's enough. Now notice the reward that he's going to give to those who overcome. Verse 26, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. Here, Jesus references Psalm chapter 2, another reference to judgment. Now, what's interesting is in fire, fire, there's a big pottery guild, and Jesus is saying that I'll give you authority like the Father has given me authority to rule over the nations. And, and basically, the pottery, the vessels, right, will even be broken. Um, this morning, he's saying, hey, we're on the winning team. You don't need to be afraid of losing. We're on the winning team. We're on the winning side. And, I, and I've been given authority, and I've been given truth, and truth and authority will win in the end, right? And so we can be encouraged that, hey, I'm going to overcome. And just like Jesus in Psalm 2 is given the nations, I'm going to be given the nations. I'm going to be uh, able to rule and reign with him. And notice in verse 20, and even better than that, he says, and I will also give him the morning star. Wow. Now, Satan in one reference is known as the morning star, uh, but often Jesus is. And, the, and Jesus is saying, hey, this world might think it has the brightness and the beauty, but I will give the overcomers the true morning star. Uh, I'll give them the judgment and the illumination. I'll give them myself. I'll give them myself. The bright star of the morning. And then he closes, and from here on out, the, the last four churches, he closes um, with the statement, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I want to give us time to take communion together, so I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and we're going to take communion together in a moment. We're going to be singing a song, and I want to encourage you to stay seated during the song, and the elements will be passed out during the song. And as you receive the elements, just hang on to them, you'll receive a cup, there's actually two cups in the, the tray, so receive the two cups, hang on to them, and we'll uh, have one of our elders, Marcos, is going to come up and that's what the song is going to lead us in time of reflection and communion. If you're not a believer here today, you're not a Christ follower, we want you to abstain, we just want you to let the cups uh, pass in front of you. If you are a believer, we want to remember and reflect on who Christ is as we but as we close our time in this section of scripture this morning, the name Fire Tyra actually means sacrifice or sacrificial offering. Isn't that interesting? They as a church were willing to sacrifice their faith on the altar of compromise. What began as a small compromise into a little false doctrine quickly became them sacrificing truth in order to accept others. They abandoned what is true for what it was convenient. In 1979, Arthur Leff, who was a Yale law professor, he spoke at Duke University, and he expressed how torn humans are over this issue of absolute truth. How we have a desire for it and a contempt, a hatred for it. Here's what he said. He said, I want to believe, and so do you, in a complete, transcendent, imminent set of propositions about right and wrong. I want to believe in findable rules that authoritatively and unambiguously direct us how to live righteously. I want to believe that. 
I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing. But rather that we are wholly free, not only to choose for ourselves what we ought to do, but to decide for ourselves individually and as a species what we ought to do. What we want, heaven help us, is simultaneously to be perfectly ruled and perfectly free. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good to create. Listen, the reality is truth is not just found in a principle this morning. It's found in a person. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And just minutes before being crucified, Jesus said this to Pilate in John chapter 18. He said, for this purpose, I was born and for this purpose, I have come into the world. Why? To bear witness to the truth. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. But Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then he walked away. Imagine that. The one who bore the words of truth, better than that, the one who was filled with the spirit of truth, better than that, the one who embodied the belt of truth, the one who, unlike Moses, through whom the law came, was incarnate in the world, bearing grace and truth, better than that, he was the truth, was standing right in front of Pilate, who in a single question dismissed with a wave of his hand, what is truth? Truth is in front of you. You're about to crucify truth. This morning, church, there's not multiple ways to God. There's one way, and his name is Jesus. And he is the door. He is the bright morning star. So rather than sacrifice truth on the altar of acceptance like Thyatira, Jesus instead was, he was betrayed, he was cast up. He was nailed to a tree. He made the ultimate sacrifice so that we can know the truth. Do you know him? Have you been set free by the truth. I want us to bow our heads this morning. We'll close with this thought. Right? Your heads are bowed, eyes are closed. My family moved out east this last year. But for about two years, we've been living in West Brayton, and Jen's mom is the uh, landlord, the owner of the duplex we lived in. And underneath this oak tree, there's all of these weeds that were growing up. And someone offered us some sod, and so we brought some, some good grass and we started growing some good grass next to our, our patio and before we knew it, this, this ground cover, these weeds, thankfully they were green, this, these green weeds started infiltrating our grass and you know what happened? I didn't deal with the weeds so quickly these weeds began to overrun the good grass. Is there an area in your life this morning Maybe smaller and significant, maybe doctrinal, practical, maybe even on the order of sinful. And you're not paying attention to it. Like the weeds, you're just allowing it to remain. You're not quick enough to deal with it. Like Pergamon, maybe you're beginning to compromise your beliefs. And listen, you can keep tolerating sin, but one day its destructive effects will take hold of you. Like carcinogenic toxins, sin will kill us slowly, one day at a time. One bad decision after another. My prayer this morning is that we would stand for truth. We would keep God's word to the end. We'd be the church of Bradenton that is known for speaking the truth in love. Thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. Visit us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 5100 Lakewood Ranch Boulevard. For more content or to learn more about Jesus, visit our website. This is shoreline.com.